0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Okay, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, we're going to, like I said, we're going to start at verse 18. This is a unit that goes together, paragraph of thought that Paul has that he transitions into uh, starting at verse 18, all the way going down his argument. To Verse 25, I'm not going to promise we're going to get to verse 25, but we'll see how God and His Spirit leads us So Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. This is from the New American Standard. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. point of emphasis here is is on the power of the gospel, the power of the message preached, the power of the content of the gospel message, which is Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and reigning on high. Another theme is Paul's contrasting human wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. Corinthians were confused by those two things. Hence the message I titled there, The Preeminence of Preaching the preeminence of the gospel message being preached the preeminence of the message about Jesus Christ crucified and risen that's what i mean by preaching biblical christianity maybe some of you haven't been with us as we've been going through 1 corinthians so just by way of review quickly bring you up to speed of why we're what we're talking about in verse 18 and how paul transitions into the priority of Preaching 18-25, to Paul's trying to bring to remembrance for the Corinthians a priority truth that they've forgotten. They've forgotten it rather quickly. They need to reestablish what they once thought and believed and lived by when they first became Christians about three years prior. Because they forgot the basic message of Christianity, which was the stable foundation and footing by which they stood, believed, and lived their life. And so every Christian needs a continual reminder. We all do. The longer you live the Christian life, I know for me, I'll stop and pause and think back when I first became a Christian. Man, I remember the zeal I had when I first got saved. The single-mindedness and the focus I had. The evangelistic fervor I had. uh, The song in my heart that I had that has seemed to have diminished somewhat. I need that reminder again. So we all need that reminder of when we got saved. And so that's what Paul's trying to do. And he's doing this to be a problem solver. That Their thinking is off base. So by way of reminder, the Apostle Paul was traveling around on a second missionary journey, passed through some cities, went to Athens, preached there, and then he left there by himself and then he crossed over and he ended up in the city called Corinth, which was kind of like a modern-day Amsterdam, uh, San Francisco. Very worldly, very carnal. Paul went there pretty much, started by himself, and began preaching the gospel, and he got some people who embraced the gospel and others who rejected it, and so a little group of Christians began to form and grow, and then at point there was a big group of people who came to leave, believe over the course of a year and a half while Paul was in Corinth, so he planted a church at this incredibly humanistic, sinful city called Corinth, and he established the church. He was their pastor, he was there for a year and a half, then he left. Three years goes by, and Paul hears that, wow, this Corinthian church that he planted was the pastor of and the apostle that brought the gospel message has many problems, and one of their greatest problems is they have division in their midst, Christians at each other's throats, divisively and divided in cliques, and really devouring each other from within. And there was a sense of urgency and immediacy that Paul needed to attend to it, so Can't get there fast enough, so he sends this letter called 1 Corinthians. to Send there to address them, to challenge their thinking, to rebuke them, to pastor them, to get them back to thinking the right way. And so they had wrong behavior because of wrong thinking. Wrong behavior always flows from wrong thinking. So the first thing you have to attack and address is a person's thinking. You are what you think. Paul knew that. So they gravitated from thinking biblically From their original foundation of what they used to believe when they first became Christians, when they first got saved three years prior, when they embraced that gospel message, they had their greatest loyalty was Jesus Christ and him as Lord. And what had happened over the course of three years is for whatever reason, they got into new loyalties and allegiances. And now they had loyalties to human beings and no longer to Jesus Christ anymore as preeminent as a result, they formed these cliques. So that was one of the main problems of the Corinthians. They had loyalty to the human agent instead of God who sent the human agent. Loyalty to a person and their personality and their methodology instead of the life-changing message. That is so easy for us to do as humans. We do it all the time. Little false idols and we put people on pedestals and we have loyalties to men who are really sinful men, fallen men who walk with feet of clay instead of keeping our loyalty and allegiance and focus on The only one who deserves all the glory, God, the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so the Corinthians did that. They lapsed into this loyalty to human beings. And the way it panned out and looked as Paul was addressing it, and based on what he heard, there were at least four factions or divisions in the church. Those who had loyalty to Paul, by the way, that was 25%. And then the 75% of the others who had loyalties, they had loyalties to somebody else other than Paul. So 75% of these known groups were not pro-Paul. As a matter of fact, they could have been anti-Paul. And that comes out clearer in 2 Corinthians. So they began to develop a wrong and disdainful and negative and critical superficial attitude towards their pastor who brought them the gospel. And they have these loyalties at the human level. So there's a group that's loyal to Paul in an illegitimate way. There's a group that's loyal to Peter in an illegitimate way. There's a group that's odd and ood and loyal to Apollos, a mighty speaker in an illegitimate manner. And then there's even this group that's uh, high and mighty and looking down their nose saying, we're loyal to Jesus. And actually Paul doesn't commend them for that because they're arrogant. They think they're more spiritual than everybody else. So their loyalties are misplaced. Their loyalties are in the wrong place. Their loyalties are on human agents instead of God alone. And so there's a large percentage of that group that is, like I said, not pro-Pauline. They are even anti-Paul as the years or the months and years go by. So Paul has to remind them how ironic what wow, your thinking is wrong. Your loyalties are misplaced. You're esteeming human beings instead of giving God all the glory. And then your view of me is even wrong and distorted and twisted and backward. And so Paul actually has to remind them of how God used him in bringing them the gospel that changed their life and made them Christians. And so that's why he says, uh, yeah, you're all impressed with Apollos and his eloquence, and I'm not as eloquent as Apollos, and but I did bring in the gospel. Have you forgotten the gospel, how important that was? That the gospel was more important than my personality and Apollos' personality and Apollos' delivery and... Peter's personality, the gospel message that saved you is the priority. You forgot that. And so 18 to 25, Paul is rehearsing what the gospel is and why it was so important and how in the gospel is true wisdom versus human wisdom that the Corinthians were enamored with. Superficial, worldly humanism and human wisdom. So he has to change their thinking. I want to look at two passages before we jump into point number three on your outline there. And the first one is, go to Acts chapter 18. I just want to show you two reminders. And the reminder from Scripture is how the Corinthians actually became Christians. That's the point of the two passages I want to read. We need to be reminded, how did these people who are now, many of them anti-Pauline, and have their loyalties on humans and not on God, how did they actually get saved three years prior? And this is how it happened. Acts Chapter 18, verse 1 and following, so follow along as I read. After these things, after Paul was in Athens, preached the gospel there, he left, and then he crossed over to Corinth, enters this pagan city. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, a tent maker, or working with... Um, fabric and sewing and those kind of things because he was at the same trade he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers verse 4 and he was reasoning so he'd work to make a living and then he would do ministry so it wouldn't be a burden on the people he didn't ask people for money he did ministry for free hey there's a concept at least in the evangelism component of it and his evangelism was in verse 4, he went to the synagogues because he was a Jew and he was a rabbi and he was invited to be a guest and he was allowed to go into the local synagogue. So there was a synagogue presence in this pagan city of Corinth and he'd go into that synagogue and it says he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews. and Greeks. He was reasoning in the synagogue. He was in dialogue. He was using logic, but it wasn't human logic. It was God's logic. He was reasoning from the Scriptures, not from human wisdom. He was reasoning from the Scriptures, from biblical truth, from the Old Testament. That was his base of knowledge we know that from acts chapter 17 when it says he was reasoning as paul was paul's custom he would go into the synagogue and reason from the scriptures and then it says he was preaching jesus to them so don't get confused when you see he was reasoning with them that he was just strictly using aristotelian laws of logic apart from scripture he was reasoning with divine revelation from scripture as he preached the gospel trying to persuade the jews and greeks Persuade them of what? That Jesus was Messiah. That was what he was trying to persuade them of. Verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy came down. So Silas and Timothy were left behind in Athens. And then they come and they join up finally with Paul in his ministry to support him, to help him, probably maybe to bring him some money so that he can eat and be freed up from having to work. So now he can give more energy to the ministry. And they came from Macedonia. And Paul began devoting himself completely. See, that's it. He wasn't doing tent work anymore. Now he had fun. So now they're paying the preacher. I'm, I'm trying to justify my job. But anyway, they're praying, paying the preacher. And Paul is full time now, immersed in the ministry in Corinth. And what was he doing completely? What was he devoting himself completely to do? It was the ministry of the Word, preaching the Word, teaching the Scripture, teaching the Old Testament. That's what he's teaching. G- teaching specifically at the end of verse 5, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. That was his ministry. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments. The Jews said, phooey, shook out his garments and said, your blood, and he washes his hands, be on your own heads since you don't believe. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, to the Greeks here in Corinth, these pagans who don't have or weren't reared in the Old Testament. Verse 7, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus. That was his new base of operations, who was a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Verse 8, Christmas, the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all of his household. And get this key phrase in verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard Paul's message, were believing and were baptized. So many of the Corinthians, these pagans, when they heard Paul preach the gospel, they believed it, they embraced it, they became Christians, they got saved and they got baptized and they became a part of the church. That is how they got their lives changed. That is how they got sin forgiven. That is how they became Christians. It was through this weak man, Paul, just a vessel of God, through the powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, revolutionized their life for time and eternity. That is what the Corinthians forgot after three years. They should have been thankful for Paul that God used him simply just as a tool, just as a vessel, a really cracked and broken vessel at that And most of all, that she had been thankful for the gospel that changed their lives forever. Many believed, verse 8. That's how they got saved. Okay, now go to 1 Corinthians 15. So at the end of this epistle, Paul, he has to remind them again. Do you guys remember how you got saved? You're critical of me. You're putting loyalty in broken human vessels illegitimately. You're enamored with style and methodology and Greek methodologies of eloquence and rhetoric, Greek logic. He tried to bring them back to their senses. Don't you remember how you got saved? So he reminded, this is a reminder, First Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, now I make known to you, Christian, uh, Corinthian Christians, and he's not making it known for the first time. Actually, it's I'm reminding you, brothers and sisters. That means I'm reminding you fellow Christians of how you got saved. It wasn't through the eloquence or some, of a man or his delivery or his methodology or the laws of logic or Greek education and humanism. I make known to you, brethren, the Gospel which I preached To you, we just saw it in Acts 18. This was the gospel, which also you received. You welcomed it. Some didn't, but you did. In which also you stand. You claim to be a Christian. The only reason you have the reason to be a Christian and believe that is because you embrace the gospel. And that is the foundation by which you live today on the foundation of the gospel. That you want to embrace so enthusiastically by which also you were saved. by the way, you got saved through the content of the gospel. It was the message of a crucified Christ. It was not the message of Sophia Lagu. Sophia. Wisdom. Lagu. Lagos. Words. Words of wisdom. Human wisdom. That phrase is in 1 Corinthians one seventeen, and that's where they got derailed. They were focusing in, embracing and enamored with human wisdom. Clever Speech says some translations. The speech of the Greeks. We already talked about this. Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. That is not what saved you. That is not what welcomed you into the family of God. That is not what secures your eternity in Christ. That is not what has forgiven you of your sins. That is not what has protected you from your own sin, death and the devil. It's not human wisdom. It's not human wise words. It is a word. He uses the same word logos. It's not wise words, human words, clever words, Sophia words, verse 17, transition to verse 18, but it was words, lagos. And it was the word of the cross he uses the word. It was a word. It was a preached word. It was the word of the cross. It was the word of Christ. It was the word of crucifixion. It was the word of the gospel. It was the word of your sin. It was the word of your need. It was the word of your need of salvation. It was the word of God who rescues and saves. That is what saved you. That is the gospel. And so that's what he's trying to remind him in verse by which also you were saved. That is if you hold fast the word that I preached to you that you said you believed. Unless, of course, you believed in vain. In other words, you had a false profession. You're a phony. You're not a real Christian. You're a goat. You're not a sheep. You're a weed. You're not wheat. That happens. Jesus said it would. So it could very well be there were pseudo-Christians in the Corinthian congregation planted throughout who were not truly regenerate. They heard the gospel originally. They thought they knew what it meant. They thought they liked it. They thought they embraced it. They thought they believed it. They thought they believed Christians. But Paul is saying it is very possible that some of you believed in vain for whatever reason. You didn't truly believe, or maybe you didn't understand, or maybe you were blinded by Satan, or you were had wrong motives and you just wanted to be a part of the group. That happens in every church. That happens in Christianity. Jesus promised it would. And that happened with Jesus Himself and the 12 apostles that He handpicked after He prayed all night for the Father's wisdom as to who He should select. And among the 12 was Judas. And so for over three years, Judas, feigned belief, looked like an apostle, had a role among the 12, followed Christ, said he believed in Christ, did miracles in the name of Christ amazingly. And then at the very end, it turns out he's not even a believer from the beginning. Jesus told him that at the Last Supper. You are unclean. You were never saved in the first place. You were a deceiver. You were a liar. And I guarantee you that at one point, Judas was self-deceived and he actually truly believed he was a believer. The fact is, he never was. The Gospel of John makes that categorically clear. And if it can happen with Jesus, it'll happen in every church with any pastor all throughout church history. And that's why he says uh, the gospel that you believed, that you accepted, that saved you, that I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. Examine yourself and make sure you truly understand the gospel and truly believe it and that it has truly changed your life. Do not be self-deceived. What is that gospel? Paul, verse 3 For I deliver to you is of first importance that I also received. Here's the gospel, very simple. That Christ, it's about Jesus. That He died. He had to. God the Father killed Him. Slaughtered Him like a lamb. Blood had to be shed for the penalty of sin. Christ died as a substitute for our sins. Christ, even though He didn't deserve to die, He died for sinners who deserved eternal hell. He died in our place as our substitute out of mercy and out of love. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. So that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He did it according to the Old Testament Scriptures. This is God's plan all along. It was planned in eternity past. God hasn't deviated. He hasn't changed the plan. He hasn't punted. It's always been the same. By grace, through faith, for sinners, through Christ. Verse 4, and Christ was buried. And then He was raised on the third day according to the scripture. That is the gospel. And that is the gospel that the Corinthians need to be reminded of. And that is the powerful gospel, the preeminent gospel, the true wisdom of God and the true power of God. So let's go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, picking up verse 18. And we're going to go on to point number three as Paul delineates and explains this powerful gospel that is true power, true wisdom, unlike the false pseudo-wisdom of the world. And so uh, we talked about the preeminence of preaching. Point number one in verse 18 was the content of preaching. That was the cross of Christ or the gospel. Jesus Christ, the God-man, voluntarily crucified and executed on behalf of sinners, being punished for them so that they might be forgiven by a holy God. And then he was buried and he raised again from the dead. And now he's seeking sinners through his gospel, his Holy Spirit, and his people. That's the message. It's not a man-made message either. It came by divine revelation initiated by God. Number two, the candidates for preaching. There's only two categories of people in the world. There are the saved and the unsaved. The saved and the lost. The children of Satan and the children of God. That's it. Only two categories of people before God in the world. That's it. Don't be confused. Don't complicate it. And Paul, in here, he says, they're the perishing and those being saved. And then now we're on to number three. And that is the competitors of preaching. Worldly wisdom. Verse 20. Boy, we got a job to do. We We have people pulling at and trying to take the attention away from the Corinthians to get their eyes off Christ and their eyes off Scripture and their eyes off the Gospel and their eyes off of truth onto other things that will distract and slowly lull them away from being Christ-centered as they live in this fallen, sinful world. There are competitors out there for the truth. They're all over the place. Satan is the mastermind behind it all. And he's trying to lure believers, Christians, away from the truth wherever he can, in whatever context he can, by any means that he can, by any venue that he can. And and Paul wants to give the Corinthians a reminder. There are competitors out there, and actually, you know what? These competitors, they've been successful on you, Corinthian Christians. They have lulled you away from your focus and you don't even realize it. They were susceptible they were vulnerable. They fell into the trap. They were ooed and awed by the wisdom of the Greek culture that it had to offer these Corinthian Christians. And so they got their eyes off of Christ and they got their eyes on man centeredness and on self and on false pseudo truth. That's how they got into the mess that they were in. They were ooed and awed by the so called wisdom of the world. It was all around them. I mean, think about the, these are Greek Christians in Corinth. Look at the legacy that they had at that time. Hundreds of years, literally, of the wisest people on earth. All these Greek philosophers. And I already mentioned them. The main ones, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Pythagoras. There were so many. They were proud of that heritage. These were the great intellects. These were the smartest people in the history of the world. These are our ancestors. These are our forefathers. And so they just kept gravitating back to that. But it was a very superficial human wisdom. It had no power. It was worldly wisdom, really. So Paul rebukes them and says, you know what, these icons that you hold up as the wisest in the world, they're they're nothing. These people you look look up to as the true wise people, that's verse 20. These are the competitors. They are competing for biblical truth. They're trying to squeeze out biblical truth in in the mind of believers. So that's why in verse 20 he says it. Where is the wise man? Literally, where is the sophist? Where is the sage? This is the intellect. This is the thinker. The so-called wise thinker in the culture. We have these in our culture and in our day and age. For us, this is the, the, uh, the college and university professor. He's smart. He's erudite, supposedly. But he thinks only on a human level. He's esteemed. He is feared. He is awed as the freshmen roll into the universities and their young skulls full of mush, listening to the Ph.D. And everything he says is not gospel truth. It is just truth. And that just reigns supreme in our day. That, university, that happens all the time. College students go off to college and all of a sudden this Ph.D. professor who's a humanist or an atheist knows more than their mom and dad who raised him. Because Satan is trying to compete with biblical truth. And so Paul's saying, so where is the wise man over there in your Aristotelian and Socratic schools and the universities? And it's... Uh, a rhetorical question. So what Paul's really saying is show me your wisest man who's not a Christian and I'll show you somebody who's not wise at all. He is a fool. Oh, you think Aristotle's your wisest guy? He's a fool. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know Christ. He's a fool. Where is he? Show me something that truly competes with the power and the truth of the life-changing gospel message. Show me your wisest man, the intellect that you have, the university professor, the think tank. So this is Wisdom. This is the thinking wise man. Then he says, and where is the scribe? Oh, by the way, when he says, where is the wise man? Speaking to Greeks primarily, this is what they thought. Now he's going to speak to the Jews in the culture and in the Corinthian church and who they thought was wise and they esteemed wise men as well. They esteemed the scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees, the authorities on truth, supposedly. And that's why he throws this out. W- well, where is the scribe? By the way, the word for scribe there is where we get the word grammar, grammarian. That's the Greek word. Where are the grammarians? The first word has to do with those who are thinking wise men. This one has to do with those who are writing wise men. Literature. Show me your wisest writing man. Show me your wisest author. Show me your uh, wisest scribe and who does letters. Show me your wisest blogger alive on planet earth today that doesn't know Christ. That's what we would say. Or your wise for us also, it's where's your wise journalist? We've got them today. So the first one has to do with thinking worldly wisdom. This is written worldly wisdom. And then the last category he confronts them on is, so where is the wise man? Where is your scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Or literally, where is the disputer of this age? Or literally, where is the arguer of this age? This is a debate. This is verbal wisdom. So you got thinking worldly wisdom, written worldly wisdom, and verbal worldly wisdom. The disputer, literally a professional arguer who doesn't know Christ, who argues about and tries to convince people with humanistic, godless, unbiblical wisdom. And they're good at it because they're gifted debaters. This has to do with verbal ability, speech, a debater, a lawyer, an arguer. I think of today in our culture, that would be talk show hosts. They control the environment. they got the microphone. They can turn it on and off when they want to. they got the script. They bring on some poor innocent victim they're going to debate with and slaughter him to pieces on national television, make them look like an idiot, make them look wise and all-knowing with their ungodly agenda. But they are very gifted. They argue very well. They are hard to beat. They are impressive. Their arguments are airtight. They have keen intellect. They think quickly on their feet. Some of our most well-known today who are hostile, to, I mentioned him earlier, Bill Maher, the Bill Maher show, if you watch that. He, he, is, he is a verbal debater. He doesn't write books, really. He's not a, an intellect. He is just good at debating, and he usually wins. And the argument typically is in his environment on his terms. And he is hostile to Christianity. He is hostile to biblical truth. Another one is John Stewart, same thing. He's hilarious, he's a comedian, he's a talk show host, he's very good verbally, he brings people on, he debates them, he eviscerates them, he humiliates them, and he is anti-Bible. And they are influential people in our culture today. So nothing new under the sun. These kind of people around in Paul's day making an influence on the culture and even trickling into the church and even persuading some Christians in wrong thinking, and it's going on today in our culture. We have competitors of the truth, I think of some of the most influential, wise men of the world who are writers who influence our culture. Uh, probably one of the most well-known would be Christ- Christopher Hitchens, who recently died. He was a lifelong atheist. Actually, not a lifelong. Became an atheist in junior high. Was raised religious. Believed in God when he was five. Abandoned that, and he was a journalist first and foremost. And he became famous through his journalism. So he was this scribe. He was, uh, a- a powerful with the pen. He was not a great debater. Actually, I've seen him debate many times. And he wasn't the greatest, uh, well, yeah, he wasn't the, but he was very good at the written word. But very influential. One of the most influential atheists in the world in the last probably 20 years. And that first category, the intellect of the day, that kind of sets the stage where everybody's just waiting to hear what he says and write down his worldly wisdom. And mentioned him earlier. That would be uh, Stephen Hawking, among others. He can't debate. He can't write. But he's able to think and has this amazing intellect, humanly speaking, and people just devour his words as truth. So we are confronted with these same three categories of people. By the way, at the end of that phrase, the disputer of this age, this age, Ionios, Ionos, of this age, of this realm, and it speaks of it's a temporary reality. It's like the spirit of the age. These are people that are considered wise in our age, but maybe in a hundred years they won't be considered wise. As a matter of fact, history will tell the truth. History might judge them differently as the years go by. So their, their truth is fleeting. It is temporary. It is not eternal. It's not universally binding. And that's why it's also different from biblical truth. It's fleeting. It is in the moment. It appeals to human emotion, immune, uh, human passion, human desires, to the flesh. It originates with self. It is self centered. It is not God centered. It's based on human achievement, works righteousness, lifting up man by man's own strength, the very antithesis of the gospel message. But that's humanism to the core. So that's what we're confronted with. I think of, think about your life, your family, and especially if you have children. Think of the competitors who are out there being used by Satan aggressively vying for the soul and especially the mind of your young person to brainwash them, to undermine what you have trained them on. And they do it just subtly, little by little. And most of the times, you know what? It's in a very harmless, fun, entertaining environment. So here are the competitors of biblical truth today. Secular scientists... They are considered the smartest and the most authoritative people on planet earth today they they know about the origins of the earth. they know it all because they're scientists can't argue with them can't debate with the scientist says evolution is true got to believe it politicians they have a bully pulpit that they speak from they have amazing influence and persuasion over people they got they carry a large megaphone in terms of who they can influence politicians and Many times they go beyond politics, legit and they get into world views and how you should think and how you should live and your religion and origins and what you should believe and what you should believe about marriage that God made and defined what you should believe about the the legitimacy of human life in a baby and abortion politicians are starting to and have been for a long time creeping over proper boundaries of their jurisdiction, trying to offer us a worldview, shove it down our throat. The most well known and most influential in the last twenty five years is Al Gore. He's gone way beyond politics. Now he's telling us, and he's written books on it, of how we should live and think and even do religion, competing for biblical truth. Uh, I already mentioned the college professors; they are competing for the truth. They wouldn't admit this, by the way. Are you hostile to Christianity? Oh no. Well, someone would actually probably say they were, but some unwittingly are doing this. Others who are competing for the truth, news anchors on television—they seem, you know, they—they come across as authoritative. They've got a script. They speak. Chris Matthews is one. Uh, who, very popular, unbiblical worldview, influencing many. Talk show hosts, Donahue led the pack in the 70s. Others followed behind him. Montel, Arsenio Hall, Jay Leno, David Letterman. They have a worldview they're communicating, and they're perceived by people as wise. I didn't mention Oprah. Anyway, um, (laughs) others competing for the minds of your children and also competing for the truth, musicians. Musicians and some really good musicians man i grew up all, loving all kinds of music and uh and I, I wasn't a christian growing up so i all kinds of music artists and uh liking their music and then i became a christian age 19 and then and then i became very disappointed because then i started finding out about the personal lives of these musicians of how hostile to christianity they are how unbiblical they are how godless they are in their worldview. and i'm thinking oh wow man, so i can't like their music anymore bummer and many of these famous musicians go beyond music and then they try to find an identity by trying to influence the world and tell you how to think. And some of it is just downright anti-Bible and anti-Christ. From Madonna to Sheryl Crow and on and on. The list goes. Stand-up comedians, same thing. Start up telling jokes and before you know it, they're trying to find an identity and then they end up politicians and elected and senators and I think of Al Franken who's a senator and. Minnesota, who just everything he stands for is contrary to a big, biblical worldview, but many perceive him as wise. Actors, they are vying for the truth. They, they get famous, they seek the limelight, and all of a sudden, because they're, they get an Academy Award, they know everything. They're an expert on everything. They're an, they don't even have kids, and they're an expert on parenting, and an expert on this, and an expert on origins, and an expert on the environment, and, just because they're a good actor and get paid a lot of money. And they start spewing a worldview. And they are very influential. And young people are persuaded by this and impressed by this, competing for biblical truth. And so all these angles is just smothering out biblical truth. Actors. There's too many to name. Public school education. The public school classroom is just a hotbed of anti Christian biblical truth. Thank God that God's got some of his people in the public school system, which is good. Principals and administrators, but they're going against the tide. It's tough. If you've got children in the public school system, I do and have you got as a parent you got to be on guard. You have to vet what they're they're learning. You have to go through their textbooks. You have to meet their teachers and meet the principal and look at the curriculum. And teach your children. Remind them to be discerning when biblical truth and deprogram and sometimes brainwash them anew. So education, be careful. Famous athletes. They get a platform they start influencing by what they say and what they think and what they believe. Uh, and then two more inroads of wrong thinking and competitors of the truth that affect how we think and how we live and this might actually be the most persuasive of all that our young people get duped by. Their peers. Their foolish friends. Those who don't know Christ, don't know God, don't have maturity, don't have a biblical worldview, and all of a sudden their comrade, their peer, their friend in high school, their friend in college, their friend at the university is an authority on everything. I'm not going to listen to my parents. I'm not going to listen to the Bible. I'm not li- My friend said... And it's an attack on the truth. And then finally, the last category that's competing for biblical truth is just false religion. It's all over the place. False religion. The cults and all kinds of religionists. Uh, Last week, we got a knock at our door at home, and then I opened the door, and there's two nice older ladies there and dressed very nice, and it looked like they had Bibles in their hands, and, and they did. And she just handed me a little tract and... So yeah we just wanted to tell you about uh some good news and i said oh great and they gave me the track and something about the end of the world and and i said oh i i believe in good news and they oh super is it, I, is that a bible you're carrying oh yes this is our, what translation is that oh it's the new world translation oh okay great can i can i see your copy oh gladly hand me the new world translation this is just last week and i opened up to uh i said i believe in the bible and they got chummy with me they thought that was cool and I said, you know, I, I got one of my favorite verses. I just want to read it with you. Read it to you. Oh, go ahead. And it was Isaiah nine six. And unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Who, who's that talking about? Who's Isaiah predicting or prophesying about? I said, oh, that's Jesus. I said, that's right. This is a prophecy about Jesus. So let me keep reading. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And I said. I love this verse because it is so clear that Jesus is almighty God, creator of the universe and the only way to heaven. And she grabbed her Bible and said, Bye! (laughs) I am not kidding. That was the end of the conversation. I wasn't trying to be insulting. I wanted to show from her own Bible of who Jesus truly is. And so she heard that and I think it it pierced to the heart. So pray that God will convict her of the truth. So anyway, going back to... uh, the competitors the competitors of of the truth and the stewardship that God has entrusted to us how how important it is and how tenaciously we need to guard it especially in our own life that's where we start not picking on your kids or your family members it starts with us how have i been duped by the wisdom of the world in all these inputs in my life in the world in which we live you can't escape it it's everywhere We're all subjected to it. So we've got to examine ourselves. At the end of this epistle, Paul is going to tell that to the Corinthians. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's where it starts. So you want some practical application? Examine yourself, your worldview, your beliefs and your convictions in light of Scripture. Or how about this question? This is a great question to ask young people. I've been doing it for 25 years. Ever since I started teaching in Christian education, I've taught in six different Christian schools, and at every one of those schools, at some point or another, in the class that I had, I was able to uh, talk to the children, whether they were elementary, junior high, or high school kids. And I would routinely ask them, so what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Now their answer is going to reflect the answer to this question. What are you impressed by? Who are you impressed by? Ask a high schooler that. Who are you impressed by? What are you impressed by? And have them write it down. It might be some athlete. It might be some musician. Famous musician. It might be some famous actor or actress. Then look at the name and stop and pause. So you're impressed by this Why are you impressed? Because it can be some absolute, total pagan who's an actor that they are impressed by. And you've got to make them think about it. So hopefully you're only impressed by one of their movies because you certainly can't be impressed by their lifestyle and their worldview and what they're preaching. Because what they believe, what they preach, what they say and what they stand for and what they live by is absolutely hostile to what you believe. Don't you get it? They had it their way. They would undermine your faith and everything you believe and stand for. What are you impressed by, young person? That'll reveal your heart. We can say the same thing to all of us. What are we impressed by? We should only be impressed and oot and odd by one thing, and that is the greatness of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That was Jeremiah chapter 9 that we just sang earlier. So, teaching in those Christian schools over the past 20 years, you know, it kind of. It, it grieved my soul. After year, after year, after year, after year, Class, after class, after class, after kid, kid, after kid. after kid, after kid, after kid. We're asked them, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, most of the things that they would say, they weren't, you know, bad. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a policeman. I want to be an FBI agent. I want to be a, once in a while, an athlete. I want to be this or that. And uh, I think two times in 20 years, two students actually said, I think I want to be in ministry. One kid, he was a 7th grader almost 20 years ago. I want to be a pastor. I almost fell over and had a heart attack. Are you kidding? Do you know? Anyway, I didn't want to dissuade him. But I just thought, man, that is awesome. You want to be a Followed up on that kid. Got a letter from that kid's mom 15 years later. He's a pastor. That was cool. Two times, 20 plus years. Um, but you need to take the pastoral minister that's got to be a call of god and not just something you want to do which i understand but at the same time i was more disappointed at some of the answers that their answers were world i want to be like worldly people i want to i want to do things that the world is impressed by or the things that the world is telling us is success whether it's fame and materialism wealth fleeting happiness superficial entertainment that, that is what is competing for the souls of the church and especially our young people. And Paul says, no, nothing, nothing can compete with God's wisdom. That is all worldly wisdom. Nothing can compete with God's wisdom, which is the gospel, biblical truth. Look at, um, Let's go on to 21, point number four. So the competitors of preaching is worldly wisdom. The catalyst of preaching is true wisdom. Belief. This is just a real simple point. Where are your wise people? Where are your scribes? Where are the disputers and debaters of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God has taken all that and just shown it to be utter foolishness. These people aren't really wise. They're shallow. How do we know? Well, look at the fruit of what they have to offer. The fruit of what they have to offer doesn't change lives, does it? It doesn't redeem people. They're not born again. It doesn't uh, take care of their eternal soul. It doesn't comfort them. It doesn't bring true joy and stability in life. They have nothing to offer. It's all superficial. So in verse 21, what has God done? The catalyst of preaching is true belief. For since, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So God decided long ago, I'm going to create human beings. I'm going to allow human beings to enter into a personal relationship with me and live with me forever in glory. And the mechanism or the path or the way to do that is not through them gaining wisdom, not through them doing works, not through them doing anything whatsoever. See, there's, therein lies God's wisdom. It has nothing to do with them. It it's all has to do with me and my way, my initiative, my plan. And It is called the gospel and it has never changed all throughout history. That is the wisdom of God. It's not going to be what you can do. It is what God has done on your behalf. Isn't that wise? You know why that's wise? Because we can't do anything on our own behalf. We can't save ourselves from our own malady. We can't save ourselves from our sin and our self-deception. We can't save ourselves from a supernatural devil. We can't save ourselves from an eternal hell. It has to be God, the creator and judge and savior and him alone. That's why it is wise. That's why the world's alternative is utter foolishness. For since in the wisdom of God, uh, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You can't come to know God on your own terms, through your own human wisdom, like the Greeks thought, like the Corinthians were starting to believe. But rather, God was well pleased. Here was God's plan. It was very deliberate. Through the foolishness of the message preached. So how can we come to know God? It is through God's plan. It is through a message. It is through the message preached. That's how it is. He does it to save those who who believe the catalyst for true wisdom the catalyst for true change the catalyst for true power that answers all the ultimate questions of humanity is through this silly unthinkable reality called belief or faith and that flies in the face of these legalistic Jews and that flies in the face of these wisdom seeking Greeks they don't get it seriously i don't have to do anything that's absurd how can i achieve eternal salvation through doing nothing. But it's by what somebody else does. Well, that's the answer. So the key word in verse 21 really is at the end of the phrase where it says, believe, those who believe it is by, that means by faith. It's not faith in what we did, it's faith in what God has done on our behalf. That is God's wisdom, that is God's plan, that is contrary to anything that a human being can even conceive of on their own. That's why all human religion throughout all ages, it's the same. It is all at the core, works, righteousness, human achievement. God had to invade this world with original material called the gospel because human beings would never come up with the gospel on their own. It is outside of their capability. And it is by grace through faith. It is through faith. It is through belief in what God has done. Just two passages before we close. Let's go ahead and look at those. Uh, And you know these. If you've been a believer for any time, but we need a fresh reminder. Ephesians chapter 2, and then hold your finger there, and then go to Titus chapter 3. This is true wisdom, this is true power. So. I put the catalyst to preaching. In other words, you preach the message of the gospel and then what enables the gospel message to be activated and change a life forever? It is faith. It is belief in hearing that message. You don't have to do anything other than repent of your sin and say, God, I believe. Save me of my sin. Belief. I believe the gospel message. Ephesians 2.8.9, Paul reminds us, for by grace, God's undeserved favor is It is by God's grace which He initiated. For by grace, Christian, you have been saved. You have been saved. And it's through faith. It's through the medium of faith. It's nothing you do. It's nothing I do. It's by grace. Through faith. And it's not of yourselves. See, that just attacks the human ego. It's not of you. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. Salvation is all of God. And then Titus chapter 3, go there. Titus chapter 3, he's talking about the same thing. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared in the incarnation of the God man Jesus Christ, who gave his life for sinners, verse 5, he saved us. He saved us as Christians. How did he do it? Well, it wasn't on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It's not human works. It's not human achievement. Do you believe in heaven and hell? Yes. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? Well, maybe heaven. How do you know? Well, because I'm a good person. I did a lot of good things. I didn't murder anybody. My goody pile is taller than my baddie pile. Wrong answer. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, so that being justified or saved by grace, apart from works. It's about belief. And then we'll go on to number five in closing, going back to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, to wrap it up, uh, as Paul's continuing his argument. So it's by the message preached about Jesus Christ. Therein lies true wisdom. It's made active by faith. In verse 22, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but instead we preach Christ crucified, the gospel, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, that's believers, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Look at verse 24. The power of God. Power. Who looked for power through signs or miracles? That was the Jews. Look at verse 22. Jews ask for signs. Jews demand miracles to validate that you speak with truth. That's what the Jews did uh, in John chapter 2 when Jesus began his ministry and he cleansed the temple and he's raising his voice and he says, you have desecrated my father's house. And then the Jews, scribes and Pharisees, responded and they demanded an answer and they said, what sign do you show us by which you speak? Show us a miracle if you want to speak authoritatively. I want a miracle. That was at the beginning of his life. At the end of his life, in the last week of his life, it says after going before Pilate, Pilate found out that Jesus belonged to the jurisdiction of Herod, so he tries to throw him off onto Herod, and Herod welcomed Jesus into his court. Oh, finally I get to see the magic man. I want a trick. And so Jesus comes in face to face with Herod. This is the same Herod who killed his cousin and good friend John the Baptist. Jesus wasn't going to say a word to Herod out of judgment. And so Herod starts talking to him and interrogating him and pestering him. And in Luke 23, it says that Jesus welcomed Jesus because he was looking forward to Jesus doing a miracle. I want a miracle. You speak authoritatively. I want a sign. I want a sign. I want a sign. So that's what the Jews demanded. Just like Moses validated his ministry with miracles. Elijah validated his ministry with miracles. The apostles validated their ministry with miracles. Then they hear this, this gospel message. is like, Psh, where's the miracle? There's no miracle in that. It's just a message. And you want me to believe it? And that's it? Poof, no magic, no smoke? No bells and whistles? So they demanded a sign. And in that gospel message... So you're trying to tell me as a Jew who was raised on the Old Testament who understands Deuteronomy 23 that says anyone who is hanged on a tree is a convicted, guilty criminal who is accursed before God forever. And you're trying to tell me that the Savior was hung on a tree? In light of Deuteronomy 23 that says cursed is he who hangs on it. Seriously? That was a stumbling block to the Jews. You're trying to tell me that the Savior is a dead Messiah? A guilty criminal who owned nothing? a poor vagrant who went from town to town. You're trying to tell a Jew that? who They knew the Old Testament and they knew that the promised Messiah was a glorious, warrior, reigning king who would smash his enemies under his feet in power and glory. And you're trying to tell me the answer is this obscure Jesus who was executed on a criminal's cross. Seriously? That's what Paul means here when he says the message of a crucified Christ is a stumbling block in the Greek word is a scandal to the Jews. On the human level, they they can't accept that. Then it says the message of the gospel is foolishness to the Greek. They hear that. Oh, your Savior who makes all things good and right was that helpless guy that got abandoned by all 12 of his followers and many more and was executed as a lowly criminal. Really? You want me to believe? That is silly. That is foolish. That is moronic is the Greek word they use in Acts 17 when they told Paul. Foolish, moronic, stupid. Your your little message of saving, it has no power whatsoever, said the Jews. And the Greeks would say, it has no wisdom in it whatsoever. It is foolish. Yet these people don't know what they're talking about. And that's why uh, Paul goes on to say, well, actually, verse 24, but to those who are the called, but to those who will humble themselves and actually believe this message, their eyes will be opened and they will see true power. Just this notion that Embracing the gospel message is not built on power. The greatest sign a miracle of all is wrapped up in that message and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle in the history of the world and it is a reality. And because Jesus lives, you also shall live. You want a miracle? That's the miracle you need to believe in. The resurrection of Christ. He is alive. It's a living Savior. No other religious leader in the world is still alive today. They're dead in the grave. You want a sign? It's called the resurrection of Christ. He lives. He's coming again that's a great sign isn't it it's the greatest sign of all and then for the greeks you you want wisdom the gospel message has inherent supernatural divine wisdom from god the wisdom lies in the fact that human beings can't save themselves and so in god's wisdom and grace god who created all things came down to the earth that he created came to the people that he created came to the people that he loves took on the form of a human being went to the cross, got executed as the God-man. God the Father punished Jesus so that you wouldn't have to be punished, so that all your sins could be forgiven. Jesus raised again supernaturally, raised on high, and is going to raise anybody who believes in that gospel. So God, in His wisdom, determined and knew finite, fallen, sinful humans cannot save themselves. God, the eternal Almighty, had to do it for them. I would call that wise. Therein lies the power, therein lies the wisdom that the Corinthians began to subtly forget. And so this is a blessed, timely reminder from the Apostle Paul. So on number five, I actually hinted at it, is the confrontation in preaching is God's power and His wisdom in the message of the crucified Christ Let me close with this. Um, Verse 23. We don't boast in human wisdom. We boast only in God and in His glorious gospel. So Jeremiah reminds us of that. Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts... Boasts of this that he understands and knows me. That's the only thing worth boasting in. I know Jesus Christ because I was a poor, pathetic sinner and he reached out and he saved me. And I boast in that and that alone. Let him boast in that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. It's time for lunch. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for this day and our time to gather together. Thank You for the living Word of God in the Scripture. Thank You for preserving the book of Corinthians. The Corinthians were just like us, Lord, or we we are just like them. We are fallen. We are immersed in a godless culture. We are prone to being influenced by ungodly influences we need your help we need your grace we need your protection we need your reminders thank you for the holy spirit to help us who lives in us help us to be discerning help us to boast in nothing but in your goodness and your grace towards us we thank you we pray in christ's name amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about dr mcmanus Other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.